The other thing is from, there's a lot of research showing that equal status contact. So putting people on teams where they depend on each other, where they learn to have the, the reciprocity of equal peers, initially highlighted differences can fade when you're working together and you're just jamming. You know, we use the analogy of uh, music here when we get started to say, let's just jam. Welcome back to the Brain and Brand Show. I'm Timothy Maurice, and let me share from the outset. I am so excited about today's episode. From heroin to Harvard to reciprocity. Our first heroin to Harvard episode was received so well that we decided to do a series. And so, here we are. In the second episode, we'll pick up from Charles Henderson's story from where we left off to show you how he used reciprocity to go from being on heroin to getting a Harvard MBA. But also how he used reciprocal principles to build a successful global consulting career. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Glenn Fox, a neuroscientist and lecturer of entrepreneurship at USC Marshall School of Business. Together, we share practical ways inspired by brain insights from neuroscience for how you can design reciprocity into your personal toolkit to help you go from wherever you are to the next level, to help you break through to get where you're trying to go. If you're new to this podcast, our goal is to share with you insights about the brain that provide both light and insight into how humans and brands behave. And if you leave these episodes able to apply at least one principle to your personal and professional influence journey, to your career, to your life, then I'm happy. Please rate and comment on the show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Meet Charles Henderson and Glenn Fox. Enjoy. Three, two, one. Charles Henderson, Glenn Fox. Welcome to the Brain and Brand Show. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Timothy, my man. <laughs> I'm so excited for this conversation for two simple reasons. Number one, anytime I can speak to Charles is guaranteed to be a delight. Number two, Glenn, since you're a neuroscientist and a friend of Charles, you're already a friend of mine. So <laughs> <laughs> let's dive in. This episode is part two of what has become a series. That started when, in a previous episode, we explored Charles' story of going from heroin to Harvard. And for those who are hearing this episode for the first time, here is a snippet to get you caught up. I couldn't visualize going to Wharton to complete my degree in finance and economics if no one told me about Wharton. From the very first vision I had, which was to not use drugs for the rest of my life, that was my first vision. And I wrote that down. I still have the paper I wrote it on. And then it went to, I want to go to college. And I wasn't sure what, what would happen at college, but I figured I want to be a businessman. And then I want to work on Wall Street. And then while I was at Wharton, some people came down from Harvard Business School. They said, we want to talk to you about uh, potentially doing an MBA at some point at Harvard. And this is our program. And this is what we look for in candidates to do MBA degrees. And man, oh, then I had this vision. Oh, my God, I could go to Harvard. And I just saw myself there. I'm going to be a Harvard graduate. Now that you're aware of just why I'm excited to have Charles back, let's dive in. In simple terms, reciprocity is a very natural impulse of someone giving and then the receiver feeling the desire to give back. And we're going to explore how this natural impulse for humans to feel the need to give back to you, we're going to incorporate, help you incorporate this into your social strategy. I'd like to call this process designing reciprocity. So before we go deep, 
using Charles' story from Heroin to Harvard and breaking down the neuroscience of how it works, let's open up the conversation with a fun, quick story of how each of us have used it in our lives. So I'll start. Is that okay, guys? Can I start? Go for it. So, Charles, you'll appreciate this. I wrote for a women's magazine for 10 years. For 10 years, every month, I was paid monthly to write for the most phenomenal women, business women in Africa. Now, as a man who cares about gender equality, this was perfect. Reciprocity got me this opportunity. Here's how. When I heard the magazine was launching, I was like, it would be a dream to write for this magazine. So I wrote them to offer to write a free blog. From there, they asked me to speak at a women's conference, then go on a tour with them, sharing ideas about the brain. And then after I spoke at one of their tour stops, the editor pulled me to the side and asked me to write a permanent column. But it all started with me giving them a free blog. By the way, I also met my partner from this magazine. So the level of benefit from that one level of blog turned into a life-changing dynamic. Charles, your story? Okay, well, Maurice, it sounds to me like that that kind of makes you a ladies' man. I mean, no. I'm just doing <laughs> two together. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, I don't think I can top you. that story. I don't think I can top that story. I got so, a feeling we got a good story coming up, though. Well, let me let me tell you, since since with since our episode is heroin to harvest and reciprocity, I'm I'm gonna give you uh one of my heroin stories, right? This is what we call the classic prisoner's dilemma. Uh so this is something you usually seen on TV. So I go back to when I was 18 years old. I woke up one morning, uh sick, sick, bent over, sick, cramps in the stomach, fever, sweating, cold nauseous, sick from withdrawal symptoms from heroin. So I got up this morning and and did something extreme. By myself, I went and I burglarized somebody's house. And then I called my buddy. His nickname was Lurch. We'll use Lurch uh, for the purposes of our podcast, right? So I call Lurch. Lurch comes down to my apartment where I'm living in the projects, right? And he looks over the goods from you know, the, the, uh, the, the, what you call it, the booty or the bounty or whatever you call it from the caper. He looks over okay. and he says, Hey, I know where we could take the jewelry. There's a jeweler that he had been dealing with before. So we take the jewelry to this deal, to this jewelry store. And he gives, he says, leave it here. Come back tomorrow. I'll give you a quote. He takes three choice pieces, a diamond ring, a Rolex watch made out of platinum and a bracelet, a gold bracelet with rubies and emeralds going around it. Right. So everything else we take to Harlem, we sell it, most of it, and we get our drugs, and I am no longer sick, right? Well, two days later, between Christmas and New Year's Eve, there's a knock on the door. In the middle of the night, police. Mrs. Henderson, they say we have an arrest for we have a warrant for the arrest of your son, Charles Henderson. They come in, they read me my rights. Charles Henderson, you have the right to remain silent, blah, 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 blah. They throw the cuffs on me. And they arrest me, right? So here we go. Fast forward now uh, a couple of days because they arrested my buddy Lurch because he was with me when we took the jury. So I'm in one room being interrogated and Lurch is in another room being interrogated. 
And of course, they want to know who burgled the house, who robbed the house, right? So I'm not going to say I did it because that would be another felony. My buddy Lurch, on the other hand, he could get out of jail. This is a get out of jail free card. If you tell on your buddy, then they would have me for two charges and he could walk. Sure. To complicate the situation, the chief of police comes down and he says to me, he says, Charles, listen, I want to offer you a deal. He says, there's been a number of crimes in the neighborhood I'm trying to solve. If you could direct me to who committed any of these crimes, I will reduce the severity of your charge from a felony to a misdemeanor guaranteed no jail time. Well, guess Mm. what? One of the crimes they were trying to solve was my buddy Lurch. (laughs) So here I am in one room being told if you tell on your buddy, you get a get out of jail free card. My buddy Lurch is in the other room being told if you tell on your buddy, you get a get out of jail free card. This is the classic prisoner's dilemma. So I'll let I'll let Glenn go into the neuroscience of this and, and game theory and how this whole thing works. But the bottom line is my man Lurch did not tell. He did not tell. And he went to jail. Mm. So this happened a few days before I was offered this deal. Oh wow. A crazy. So now I, I gotta get out of jail free card. So am I gonna tell on my buddy or what? <laughs> so now here's where reciprocation kicks in yes. to an extreme level, right? Okay. Yeah. I took yeah. the hit. I took the hit. I was like, if my boy's not going to tell on me, I'm not going to tell on him. And this was not the first time we were in that situation. So we had a little bit of a history here, which makes it a little bit easier. And I'm, I'm sure Glenn could go into the to the difference between a one shot prisoner's dilemma and an iterated version of the prisoner's dilemma. My man Lurch did a bullet. We call it a bullet. That's one year in jail for a crime he did not commit. I was sentenced to 30 days in, in the county penitentiary, two years in a drug program at the age of 19. But that's where my life turned around was in that drug program. So I, does that answer your question? Completely. It's very high level reciprocity. And I think by the end of this episode, people are going to understand just how powerful it is and why, for example, if you don't you gain so much credibility back in your community. And that is power in reciprocity. Glenn, I'm not sure how you're going to follow up with that story, but good luck. Well, it, it reminds me of, of the difference between an academic experiment and a real life situation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talk about uh, in neuroscience all the time how these, these paradigms that we use in the brain scanner need more real life stories. It doesn't get more real life than Charles there. Um, so there's there's a lot to be said here. You know, when we're talking about reciprocity, um, what we're we're talking about a lot of things, but one of the one of the most important to consider is perspective taking. First of all, what does the world look like to my friend? How do I look in their eyes? And there's a boatload of research about understanding the complexities of how we take the perspective of other people. In Charles and Lurch, their their experiment, uh, so to speak, um, shows a really in-depth understanding of each other kind of knowing how the world looked like to that other person and what 
that person would value. That's the second component, what we call subjective value, right? Subjective value, meaning not, not the thing everybody can agree upon for what it's worth, but what is it worth to him or to her? That's what we call about subjective value. So there's two layers. They're taking each other's perspective and then they're calculating the subjective value of the sacrifice that that other person may be willing to have. If Lurch were faced with 10, 20, 30 years, the calculation for Lurch gets a lot different, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Same for Charles, right? Where they're like, okay, we both been up to some, some stuff and okay, we can, we can pay out a little bit here. Um, and how that subjective value is calculated is, is still under investigation, but it's a part of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex. It's a part of the brain that's right above your eyeballs, basically, um, and right where the two hemispheres of the brain come together. And this is an extremely rich and complicated part of the brain that takes into account choice, pain, and also social evaluation of what things are worth. You know, it's a big part of the brain, so it does a lot sure. of different things. Um, sure. It's not a not a one size fits all, but all those circuits are being engaged here for Charles and Lurch as they predict uh, what each of <laughs> each of the other person is going to do or be willing to sacrifice. You know what I love about this conversation is that you can apply this whether you are a receptionist, whether you are a doctor, whether you are an entrepreneur, whoever you are. I mean, I've seen it recently with my parents. We were at dinner and the waitress was really smart to bring sweets or candy with the bill. And I saw my dad light up because he has a sweet tooth. And immediately he was like, I think we should give her a little bit more in tip. And he doesn't realize that she invoked the law of reciprocity and triggered this region <laughs> that you mentioned in his brain. And now all of a sudden he's giving more. And we see this play out on so many different levels. Uh, I use it on my website, for example, where I offer something free. You can download something free when people get something free. And you mentioned this idea of subjective value on the example of the story that I gave, the blog, I knew would take off. And I knew that if I shared my blog with my existing reader from my newspaper column, they would see the actual value. So what I knew they needed was revenue-based exposure to this new magazine. And so that specific value uh, that I knew that I would exchange and share, I knew would have some level of return. So whether it's a waitress giving sweets or you're giving something free on your website, or as we're about to discover, just how deep it can be, it runs the gamut from simple things you can do in your life to extraordinary changes, how you link to your community. So Charles, let's, let's dive back into you know, you mentioned the, the prisoner's dilemma. These are high stakes. I mean, you're talking high stakes at this moment. I mean, those decisions could have changed your life forever. Share with us a little bit more on how you've been able to use reciprocity going from heroin 
to Harvard. Okay, if you will allow, I'm going to bounce now to a a work-related situation. And I'm going to go to shortly after graduation from Harvard, actually. Um, So here's here's the thing, Timothy. For me, it was always about having what I call a helpfulness, helpfulness mindset, right? So I always look for ways, little ways that I could do things for people. And so I get this job after after Harvard Business School, and this was my ticket to South Africa. But I had to work in the U.S. for for two years with Otis Elevator Company, right? Uh, and then they would send me to South Africa for two years. That was the deal. So I get there, and I'm, I'm hired for uh, recruitment. Uh, they're trying to diversify the, the workforce, uh, so I'm I'm hiring at the MBA level, recruiting at the MBA level, not hiring, but uh, recruiting at the MBA level. Black, Hispanic, basically black and brown people. So I'm going to the business schools to, 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 to cut it up with people and try to attract, right? But I have to work now with a, with a recruitment manager who's my boss, John. His name was John Korzak. And then it's me, John, Jane, and Jan, right? John, Jane, and Jan. Jan was the secretary uh, uh, and, and Jane was my colleague. Every month on payday, and we would get paid twice a week, I would go to Dunkin' Donuts and I would bring in a box of donuts and everybody would get so excited. Right? Eventually, I, I, I figured out which donut everybody in the office liked. And then I made sure I had that donut and they would open the box and say, oh, you got my favorite donut. I can't believe it. And everybody had their favorite donut. Right. That was just one little thing that I would do to make people smile and feel good. So I realized I learned this at, a, at, a, at on my heroin years, that if you create positive emotions for people, then they will feel good and be more likely to reciprocate in whatever way you may need them to, right? So here's what happens. I get a call from Lurch in jail, collect at the office. (laughs) That was the only way he could reach me because back then there were no cell phones and he could only call during working hours. So- The secretary, Jan, comes to me. She says, she, she whispers, Charles, you have a call collect from a guy named Gary at the state penitentiary. What should I do? <laughs> so I said, put the call wow. through. She, she puts the call through. Now I have to go and explain to John, <laughs> listen, this can't go untalked about, right? So I go and I say, John, listen, we need to talk. I close it at the door. I said, this is the situation. I said, this is my personal background, my history. I says, it is what it is. Um, you know, I'm, I'm long out of that, but I still have friends uh, that were friends then, and they're friends now. One of my closest buddies, Lurch, is in jail for drug-related crimes. It's all nonviolent stuff. And the only way he can reach me, I said, I'm happy to, to pay for the calls, but that's the only way I can see. He said, Charles, don't worry about it. Mm. Don't worry about it. John did that. He gave me opportunities. So here's, this is the difference, I think, between allies and relationships. Allyship is a one-way thing. It's a person who has power that does something for a group or people or an individual who has less power. That's an allyship. That's the way they define it, right? But a relationship is both ways. It's it's reciprocated, right? So I would go out of my way to try to do things for, for John, you know, I always exceeded all of his expectations work-wise. So that was the first thing, right? I, I got my job done. And if I needed something, he was like, Charles, no problem. 
John has a crisis one day on a recruitment event that I'm not on, but he's with two African-American women. And during that event, they felt that he was racist and he gets called out as a racist because uh, when, uh, when, it was, when it was time for Otis, Otis was part of UCT, right? This part of the United Technologies Corporation. So there's Sikorsky, there's, you know, all these other companies and they would all go together uh, uh, to these universities to recruit from the business schools. And each, each company would have somebody speak on behalf of the school to a group of students to try to interest them and coming for interviews and, and looking at careers. So John chooses somebody white. He doesn't choose a black person. He chooses two white people. And they felt he was racist. And they called him racist. And they sent a memo to somebody. He comes back from Chicago. This was at the University of Chicago Business School. And he's all bent out of state and, and, and distorted. And he tells me what happened. I get all the details. I said, right, let me talk to them, John. I called these sisters up. They explained to me what happened. I said, okay, I got it. I spoke to John. I says, um, he, that there was no racial intention. I said, John is not racist. And I could tell you why. And I told him all the things that he had been doing to back me up on the diversity programs that I was implementing, right? Forget about just my personal relationship, but everything sure. I saw him do, he, he was supportive. I called him up. We got the whole thing squashed. John had an ally. <laughs> you understand wow. what I'm saying? So when yes, they talk yes. about allyship, one of the things that people don't understand, and Glenn could speak to this, there was a professor who got called out at USC uh, last year because he was speaking in Chinese, but he used a term that sounded like the N-word, but it wasn't the N-word. <laughs> he got accused of being a racist, and it was like a major deal. Oh, my God. I mean, the, the guy suffered, right? Yeah. But there was nobody, yeah. there was nobody Black that came to his rescue. Because he didn't have an ally. Yeah. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So this ally thing goes yeah. both ways. Yeah. I mean, he hadn't developed or thought about designing, which is why this conversation is so important, is to proactively design the, into your life the principles, your understanding of the principles of reciprocity. Glenn, you know, for those people who are sitting there going, look, Charles seems like a natural at this. He seems like a people's person. He seems like the type of person who's trying to give and he's loving and he's caring and he's, you know, big personality for shy people, people who are just like, look, what are some simple things I could be thinking about, about when it comes to how the brain works, but also just basic stuff in life to be able to, you know, apply these principles. I have a phrase that I love to say called give and forget, right? When we suffer a wrong from people, um, the need for forgiveness is really, really hard. And you'll still hear people of great wisdom say, well, you have to forgive and forget. When it comes to giving, when it comes to dealing with gratitude and reciprocity, the principle I like is give and forget. I think Charles, for one thing, I don't think he is where he is if he were giving these things just to manipulate people. <laughs> I don't think so, right? So when you give, just give and don't worry about it. Tim, your example of writing the, the article for free um, is a great one. I don't think you were there saying, I can't wait to call in a favor for this because people pick that up in a second. 
They pick yeah. that up in a second. So you give and you forget. I think that is one of the key elements of getting that trust going to building those allyships. I think between John and Charles, I think they had a free and dare I say loving now, maybe in a professional way, not, not like, I mean, like Spinoza said, gratitude is love returned for love. And I think it was Charles saying, man, I got my foot in the door at a place with opportunity. I'm going to help out. I'm going to grow. And John said, this Charles is hustling. He's a wonderful guy. And I'm going to keep my eye out for him. I'm going to listen to him. And that, that relationship was genuine. I don't think Charles plays the role of a, an ally in that situation if John had not been genuinely caring. So the genuineness is part of that subjective value. Research has shown that indebtedness and gratitude are completely different. The minute you give in the hope of receiving, and this is kind of the Zen part of it, the minute you give in the hope of receiving, you've lost the battle. Uh, you, you give and you, you know, we know when people cheat us, when you give and nobody ever returns, like, you know, I'm not so worried about being taken advantage of there. And if you give and somebody takes and doesn't return, their loss, it's their loss, not your loss. So give and forget. That's, that's a really great strategy because you're right. I mean, this speaks to the culture of your heart, the culture mm -hmm. of your soul, the culture of your instincts, the fabric of your values. When you weave your values together, the more solid, your fabric is the, the, what I like about this, Charles, and I want you to speak to this is whether you are, you're an executive in the C-suite, whether you are a masterful dealer on the, on the street corner, wherever you are, people can sense you can be in a rural area where people have not gone to school at all, but people can sense if your fabric is weak. Talk to that a little bit, Charles. <laughs> Well, I, it's funny, you being in South Africa, I can tell you, I've, I've been in places where people did not speak English, right? My, when I first came to South Africa, uh, the first trip, which was in 1991, right? I spent three months of the four months in South Africa. This is right after business school in KwaZulu-Natal, right? And I was often around Zulu people who couldn't speak English. And I was trying to learn Zulu and uh, I pick up a few words here and there. Uh, but, but what I realized is that <laughs> every, everywhere I went, I was just say, Hey, if I can, if anything I can do to help, I'm here. And if not, let's just sit down. And as my homeboy Turk used to say, kick the Willie Bobo. Let's just have some tea <laughs> and some biscuits, what they call biscuits down here. We call them cookies in the U S right. Sure, and just, sure. and just enjoy each other's company, listen to music. And, that, and the relationship would always evolve from there. You know, I'm not the American coming down here trying to tell you all what you need to do to fix your problems. That's not why I'm here. If there's something I can do to help, hey, let me know and I'll jump right in. But if not, we're on the Willie Bobo tip, brother. I mean, one of the things that I would recommend to anyone listening and both uh, you, Charles and Glenn can um, dive in at any point, but is to try to find the genius in other people's cultures. I mean, part of what I've seen over the years, like if, let's say you're in a community where you have an immigrant population around or a group of people in an out-group. You're part of the dominant in-group, but you've got an out-group community 
that's around that you're struggling to, you know, be more inclusive with because you don't understand. What I always do is look for the genius. What is the mastery? What is the what is the high level refinement and beauty in, in that culture? Part of what that does is immediately I know I'm going to learn. I know that I'm going to evolve and I'm going to be able to apply what I'm learning to some area of my life. So that's what I race to. I go strictly, you know, I even in um, wherever I'm traveling, you know, I was in Japan working with Panasonic and I asked these guys to share with me a few sort of anecdotes and wisdom and different things about the culture that I can incorporate. So I asked specifically to teach me something that I can incorporate into my life. And I found that to really work because you're showing and you're demonstrating trust and faith and belief in the deepest part of people's culture. And I don't want to bring religion much into this, but I've also seen that, for example, if I have a colleague or someone in the Jewish community or in the Islamic sort of faith or they're Muslim or whatever, that if I show that I understand something or I'm trying to learn a little bit about their culture and their background and their faith, that that's also a huge influence in this sort of reciprocity journey. Have you guys had any experience with any of this or how do you go about um, engaging sort of out groups or any sort of foreign groups? Well, I can, I can take that. You know, it's, it's interesting for, on the personal level, you know, I'm, I'm a person who is Caucasian and I grew up in a town where I didn't meet even a, a person who spoke Spanish until I was in middle school. You know, it's oh, very, wow. very, very white. I would say that the, some of the most meaningful inner work that I've done has been moving to LA and just as he said, Tim, seeing the genius and the richness of those cultures. And um, it has been as meaningful as any meditation, as any inner, you know, because I'm a big mindfulness advocate in terms of understanding myself and growing closer to other people working to get to know folks has been the best. Now, the, the brain side of that is, A, our brains are plastic. So yeah, we know that there's bias. We know it's real. And that can change with practice. Our brains are plastic, right? Our brains can learn. The other thing is from, there's a lot of research showing that equal status contact, meaning meet people eye to eye, level playing field, have a chat, equal status contact contact does a lot to reduce prejudice. So putting people on teams where they depend on each other, putting putting people together where they learn to have the, the reciprocity of equal peers, suddenly you're working on a team together. A lot of those, those you know, initially highlighted differences can fade very quickly when you're working together and you're just jamming. You know, we use the analogy of uh, music here when we get started say let's just jam let's improvise yeah and and that's when everything fades away you're depending you're leaning on each other and you learn and that's where the growth happens for me it's been so meaningful it's why i love living in los angeles oh lovely charles i know for you know just sort of observing you and watching you and you know just sort of paying attention because one of the things i like to do is put you know is to have a compliment of friends and people around me that I enjoy, not necessarily just like I like if I look at my friend's circle, I look at people around me, I really enjoy. So if they ask me for something, it's 
you know, I mean, I'm to be able to come back and do something. It's just an absolute pleasure. So I enjoy what I see, Charles, with your work is you absolutely enjoy what you do. When I see you lecture and speak to a group of leaders and business people, you enjoy it. How much do you think that when you transfer joy, uh, that it's reciprocated back to you in business? Well, Glenn can speak to this around the mirror neurons, right? I mean, this is what you put out is comes back to you. The brain just works that way, right? So, I mean, think about it. You watch a movie, right? This is what great actors and actresses do well, right? You watch a movie. And whatever that actress or actor is putting forth, you feel it. If it's a scary movie, you're afraid. If it's a romantic movie, you feel love and you may shed a tear, right? If it's an action movie, your heart is racing. So whatever you see is reflecting back through the mirror neurons in the brain, right? So yeah. I try to greet, bro, every person that I meet, and I learned this, I, 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 I'm, I'm sure I, my brain has rewired this way. Uh, where everywhere I go, every person I meet, I greet them in only one way. And that's with love and kindness in my heart, a smile and a hand of friendship. That's just across the board. And even if they don't reciprocate that immediately, that's not my problem. That's their problem. And I'm going to make it hard for them to to hold back. I am. They're going to have to fight hard to hold back. <laughs> Sometimes they do, actually, but it's not easy for them. I can yeah, see they're yeah. struggling and stressed out. Um, because it's hard to it's hard to not just reciprocate somebody's love. And, and it's like Glenn said, I don't expect anything in return. I, I do this because I decided this is who I am. This is who I want to be. Everywhere I go, you know, they're saying everywhere you go, there you are. <laughs> everywhere I go, that's how I present myself. And I I just became that way. Yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about the mirror neurons, Glenn, because I think this is central it's a huge part of the the underlying sort of architecture of how and why reciprocity is such a big deal. So the the mirror neuron system originated when we um, observed when a, a group of researchers observed in um, non-human primates, or um, uh, I think it was a, I won't get into the full detail, but they saw that there were a group of neurons that were active both when you performed a motor gesture, and most interestingly, when you observed a motor gesture, meaning reaching for um, food. So if you reach for food, there, there's um, theoretically neurons that when, so Charles just grabbing a bottle. So there's probably some neurons in my head that activate it as if I grabbed a bottle. Yes. So what we see are that there, there's a part of our brain that's involved very deeply in understanding other people's gestures and motivations. Now it's kind of an open question how these mirror neurons relate to empathy, but it's clear that our ability to take the perspective of others certainly binds us to them and certainly helps us understand their point of view as they go through things. And I think what Charles said, something really smart there that, you know, being nice to people and showing up with reciprocity and letting them sort of making it hard for them not to see your love is a great way to do it. Put some hurdles in the way <laughs> from them. Like, Oh man, uh, I don't want to, this guy is so good. Like, you know, put some, put some hurdles in the way so that they can see your, your perspective more. And you're triggering a lot of these brain circuits for empathy, for compassion 
And it goes back to those, those circuits for social reward. There's a whole circuit of the brain network for when you have a rewarding social interaction with people. Um, and it, it's actually ties right back into those reciprocity and subjective value parts of the brain as well. So you're really working with, with core and deep, deep brain circuits. That's what I think makes this so interesting. It doesn't have to be, it's a feeling thing. It's feeling, it's emotion as well as sort of um, how we think and, and less about how sure. we strategize. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, there are people out there, particularly after the pandemic that are looking to grow their network. There are people who are looking to, there are single people who are looking to meet other people online. There are people who are out there who are just trying to, you know, expand the quality of their relationships. And so whether you're single, I want you to lock in and pay attention uh, to what we're about to share. Charles, how have you used this in growing relationships, just in terms of outside of business? Let's talk a little bit about, um, I know personally for me, we all do this. If you get someone flowers, you know, there is some sense of the law of reciprocity at play there. Um, and we've talked about the need to be genuine and so forth. But let's talk about practical ways to kind of grow your network, to expand, um, you know, both of us have made drastic leaps. Glenn, you mentioned you moved to L.A. Um, Charles and I both moved to South Africa. Let's talk about if you're in a situation where you want to meet somebody to date or you just want to expand your network, uh, how do you go about using the law of reciprocity? Well, I, the first thing, Tim, to be is for me, it's important to make people feel good, to, to basically generate positive emotions right, on the part of every person that you come into contact. That's what I do, right? Everywhere I go, I want to put a smile on a person's face. I want to warm their heart in some way. And there's some basic things that you can do. And now it's just so natural to me. I don't even think about it anymore. So I, again, my brain has been rewired to just do this. Compliment people a lot, right? I, I always look for the positive things uh, in people. Uh, it's easy to, it's like easy the negative stuff to stand up, but compliment people. You know, wow, those are, you know, nice, nice frames you have. Where did, where'd you get those from? And then give a person time to talk about it. Um, I know this is a sensitive thing now in the U S but I, you know, down here, so people are not as sensitive, you know, complimenting, uh, uh, women, for example, but not in a promiscuous way, just saying, Hey, you know, those shoes are working for you. Um, I said, you got the whole combination of brains and beauty. I said, when you got up in the morning and looked at yourself, you must have known <laughs> this, this <laughs> is working for me, right? Sure. And then I sure. may say, where did, where did you get those errands from? Where did you get those shoes from? And if people chance to talk, lots of positive feedback at work, uh, researching yeah. and Glenn can speak to this. Um, I give more positive feedback than I can count. And if I give some feedback that's constructive in some way, uh, it, it's rare. In fact, often I don't feel like I have to criticize every time someone does something wrong. The people know they made a mistake. You don't have to tell them, right? It's only yeah. if somebody's, if, if the behavior is repetitive over and over again, then you say, hey, listen, we need to talk. But if you've given enough positive feedback, showing the person that you care about them, then it's easier. Uh, gratitude, expressions of gratitude is another one. Say thank you. Be grateful for the things people do for you. Um, I give these exercises out in some of my programs and coaching, and it's amazing the, the results 
that uh, leaders get, executives get, when they just start saying thank you, it's, it's, as opposed to say, hey, that's your job, <laughs> right? You do, you're just doing your job. That's why we pay you. <laughs> say thank yeah. you. Every little thing, right? So these are the things that, for me, very basic that really don't cost much at all. Buy some donuts. And that, that doesn't cost much either. They have Krispy Kreme <laughs> in South Africa now. Order a yeah. box and see what happens. <laughs> and I and I, I agree. I mean, I've noticed that even on Zoom, for example, if you send out comments when you're in a meeting that compliments the order and the fact that there's been discipline on this call and you are engaging your clients in a way where they see that you are paying attention to the hard work that's been put into it. That is a powerful triggering moment. If you are in a one-on-one meeting and somebody has gone out of their way to make sure that there are flowers or some sort of backdrop that is really well-designed, a simple compliment, just gratitude, as you said, it's really, really powerful. Anything you want to add to that, Glenn? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it certainly triggers that upward virtuous cycle. You know, people who feel good are going to um, see more options in the world. They're going to be more creative. They're going to be more inspired to work a little harder. I always say, if you want someone just to do the job they're paid for, then you should probably hire a robot. If you want someone to go past your expectations, say thank you um, and see them. We're living through a historically tough time. This is historically crappy. Um, we had a, a baby boy, thank God, born healthy in the beginning of the lockdown, you know, so um, really tough time to, to give birth. And it's been a tough year, you know, but I got vaccinated this weekend. I hope oh, everybody wow. else who's getting vaccinated, I hope, and I'm so grateful for everything it took to get to that space. But I'm also grateful that, it, hey, man, we have Zoom. We yes. have a tough time, but we have always have the chance to show gratitude, especially when it's tough. You know, it goes back to what the the culture of your soul. You know, there's never an excuse to treat people badly. There's never an excuse, no matter how rough things are, to really slam someone. We never have that. That speaks to the culture of your soul. That's what grace is to me. It's like you're still going through a tough time saying thank you and recognizing people and saying, man, you went a little beyond things. Or, you know, even like, boy, you pulled off the most basic thing in the world. That's huge. You know, recognizing people, you'll just see them unfold and it, and it opens their mind. They're going to be more creative, more productive. There's tons of research to show that as well. I want to close as we wrap up with, and this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you guys. I want to close as we wrap up to talk a little bit about how you invoke reciprocity with yourself, how giving to yourself, your body can respond. You know, a giving yourself the gift of a walk to essentially decide that I'm going to give myself respect. I'm going to give myself a, the, the, the acknowledgement that I deserve health and so forth. Um, one of the things when I first met you, Charles, was just how much you paid attention to the details when it came to your health, just the, the small things when the respect and if you were busy, you were busy, you know, you were, you carved out time for, you know, the depth of who you are as a human being. Let's just, let's wrap this up. I mean, maybe you can even share your sort of final comments about reciprocity, using giving to yourself and others as a way 
the final comments. I'll start with Charles and then Glenn, you can share your thoughts as we wrap. For me, it's about balance, uh, Timothy. So I, I subscribe to a philosophy um, of uh, trying to balance the things I do for myself and the things that I do for others. Right? So it's, I see it kind of as a seesaw, if you will. It goes up and down, right? So there's times when I, when I, when I'm doing a little bit more for myself, right? I, I want to get a new TV or upgrade my home entertainment system or, uh, want to, I want to, uh, go on a nice vacation, right? And then there's times when I'm not doing as much for myself. You know, I'm going to pay the school fees, uh, for the, for the little girl who's the daughter of, uh, one of the brothers who, you know, comes and helps me out and works, you know, around who can't afford to pay the, the school fees, right? Uh, so it's really balanced to me. And then it's a matter of saying, well, what is it that I really want? Right. I have to be clear. And that's what makes me feel good. Right. So the same way I do things that make other people feel good. <laughs> I do the things that make me feel good. You know, I'm a wine collector. Right. So I, I, I invest intellectually into my wines. Right. I don't just go to the store and buy a bottle. I research it. I, I, I look mm. for uh, information around the, the soil, the, the landscape, the, the weather, what part of the world that the grapes are growing that are used to make this wine. I, I love wine from Italy, from Mount Etna, because they, they grow on a, the, the grape vines grow out into and into a volcano, right? The ash of a volcano, an active volcano. Um, and I love talking about that and sharing that information when I open a bottle with, with friends uh, who you have experienced with me, right? From time to time. Yeah. So that's really what it's all about, Timothy. It's about I have to decide what's, what it is that I want. And, and, and the things that I want, I balance that. Like you said, it's about health. I can't just eat anything I want. You know, I try to exercise to keep my health. So I try to keep myself fit, uh, mentally, uh, physically, emotionally, um, and, and spiritually. Thanks so much, Charles. Well, you know, it, you never want to follow Charles. You know, that's such a beautiful <laughs> thing. And now I'm thinking about the, the great wines I've had from all over the world. Um, you know, it's, it is so important. Self-care, self-compassion, the research on self-compassion is very persuasive that it's so important that we show ourselves grace just as well. I, I think setting aside time for fun and for creativity is not optional. I think it's mandatory. Um, I don't think it's trivial or frivolous to say, I'm going to have some fun, um, and to set aside a couple hours to try to to try to do something. So being creative is really important. Moving, um, you know, we watch a lot of Sesame Street, and they're totally got it right. You know, you gotta you gotta use your body, you gotta move your body and use your mind. You know, those are the two important things to show yourself a little bit of self care. I'm so grateful to Charles Henderson for his courage and generosity of spirit, and of course to Glenn Fox for bringing the neuroscience angle. You can follow both of these gentlemen on Twitter. Charles is Charles M. Henders, Charles M. Henders, and Glenn at Glenn R. Fox. And if you're not into Twitter, you can look them up on LinkedIn, and I'll share further links in the show notes. As we mentioned throughout the episode, if you can develop a personal internal value system where giving and triggering reciprocity is natural and not forced, it'll take you very far. Look out for part three coming soon. Until next time.